All right, I'm so excited to be back. It's been a little bit. Um, another edition of the Manifestor Mindset, where we try to talk to people um, about the journey of transcendence, of being able to optimize your full potential, which is a really relevant topic, as everyone right now is trying to figure out what the hell is going on and what do we do next. And so I'm really excited today to have two very special people. They are many things, but for uh, for today, they are the founders of uh, the uh, uh, Female Founders Collective. Did I get that right? I always kind of get that. Uh, Founder, uh, female Founder Collective. No Female answer. Founder Collective, exactly. Which uh, really important mandate of amplifying all the incredible female-owned businesses out there and creating a community, tying everyone together, but also building awareness. So those who want to put their dollars to work supporting female founders, uh, they can do so and know where to begin. It's kind of amazing that it didn't exist until you launched it in 2018. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to spend a lot of time with Ali. We're going to spend a lot of time with Rebecca going through it. But Rebecca, I want to start with you. Just uh, everybody knows who you are. But for those who just were born yesterday and uh, have not followed your incredible career moving to New York and your you know journey as a designer, can you just give us a little bit of the overview of how it began and how that led to your inspiration to, to uh, found your, your new startup? Yeah, so I moved to New York when I was 18 to work for a designer. I had a paid internship, but when I say paid, $3 an hour paid. Um, I had nowhere to live, and I was just determined to figure it out. Um, I ended up shacking up with my cousin in exchange for some babysitting a couple nights a week and um, fell in love with you know the industry. It's something that I had a passion for my whole life. started sewing at the age of eight. Um, so I got hired, worked for the designer for about three years before getting politely fired. Uh, the exact words were, you're fired, you know what you're doing, go do it. I was 21. In hindsight, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I was able to begin to start selling a t-shirt after 9-11. Uh, it was on a famous actress and she wore it on Jay Leno and we sold a ton of those shirts. That's all I did for nine months was make these I Love New York shirts. Um, but it really got my foot in the door. That's my husband. Hi, sorry. Hi, husband. Uh, it allowed me to make phone calls, get my foot in the door. People are like, I don't know what you do, but your name sounds familiar. We'll take a meeting. Um, did apparel only for about four years, then launched the bag in twenty in 2005. So we're celebrating our 15-year anniversary this year. Um, and really, as, you know, as I sort of went through, I guess, what would have been my college education of my career since I didn't go to school, was, you know, it's lonely being a founder. Um, it's, you know, Google does not tell you everything when you need resources and um, how to's. And so, you know, your network is beyond powerful. The six degrees of separation of your network is beyond powerful. And so how do we sort of help and elevate more female founders? You know, I kept getting asked all the time as I'm on the speaker circuit, you know, what's it like to be a female founder as if we're polar bears, right? Clearly there are not enough examples of female founders in the world if, if you know, there's 10 women that are sort of constantly on the covers or talking. So um, Ali and I joined forces at the end of 2018 to really take this and, and make it about community education and um, access to other founders because they have the best hard-won knowledge. So I felt lucky when Ali reached out and she can speak to her experience and what makes this a, a great partnership. Allie, you've had um, a ton of winter, winners in your uh, in your portfolio. You can go on a bit, but you backed the wing, you were at Refinery, seemed to have a pretty good eye. So when you first met Rebecca, what made it click? Like this is something that's worth your time. 
Well, Rebecca had actually launched FFC um, with the seal. And that was really giving consumers a way to vote for female owned businesses with their wallets. And so I, you know, connected with her and we talked about the lack of resources available for women, the lack of capital available for women. Um, and the fact that frankly, women are starting businesses at a higher rate than, than men and almost 2000 per day. And I think people were sort of opting out of the corporate world because it was just too inflexible for a modern woman's schedule. A modern woman, you know, they might have kids. They most likely have kids. And if you want to have kids and get them to school in the morning and be able to be available for them throughout the day, it's almost impossible to sort of conform to a corporate schedule. Um, so whether they were opting out of the corporate workforce in order to create their own amazing enterprise and, and um, to be an entrepreneur, or they were opting out because they simply had to. It was just, it was a fact that I was seeing in my my former role at Girl Boss, where we were trying to really help women as they took control of their life. And one of the biggest ways was obviously as they started their own businesses. So we we got to talking and we sort of tried to figure out what was going to be the most helpful thing. And I think at the base of that, as Rebecca mentioned earlier, it's about community. Um, and it's that network that guys kind of automatically form um, where instead of this zero sum mindset, it's about how can we actually lift each other up? How can we give each other advice, help see around corners, help get around roadblocks um, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get around? Um, and then how do we get access to capital? I think that's a really big thing too. Rebecca, do you think um, in the time that you started your entrepreneurial journey going out on your own to fast forward 20 years later, What's changed and what remains to be changed, either attitudinally or culturally, that presents a barrier to a woman starting a business? I hope you're gotten slightly better or somewhat better. So I think when when I launched my company, you know, the barrier to entry was a lot higher um, in terms of launching a company, getting visibility. There was the old school way of doing things. Your only way to reach the consumer back then was a glossy magazine ad for $40,000. Um, and now the barrier to entry is almost zero. So anyone can throw up a website, start an Instagram, direct mail, you know, e-commerce. Um, but because everyone can do it, it's how do you stand out? How do you differentiate yourself? And I think, you know, there's the sexy part of it, which is, you know, photos and marketing. And there's the unsexy stuff of it that you really need to know in order to stand out. You know, what's your CRM platform? You know, what's your tech stack? All these all these nitty gritty that sometimes, you know, a lot of these women, especially, you know, speaking from experience, we start our company with a passion, um, but we don't necessarily have all the skills needed to succeed. And so, you know, bridging that gap. So definitely no barrier to entry, but harder to stand out. And do you think, and I'll put this to both of you, so I've been thinking a lot about the permanent changes that are come from COVID that'll, that'll be pretty good, which is the barriers to launch your company have, have you know, evaporated overnight, right? The expectation mm -hmm. that you need to have this perfect veneer of even a WeWork or an office or even employees, you know, is now gone. And so I would think in a post COVID world that should hopefully benefit women who are unfortunately are juggling all these different competing tensions, right? In society, which has not adequately changed enough. Do you think once we come out the other side of this, it'll benefit women entrepreneurs? I, I was just going to jump in about the, I think, yes, if we can figure out childcare, I, I think, yeah. You know, once kids are back in school, 
heaven forbid, they, they go burned. Back to um, hopefully they go back to school. Um, I think once kids are back in school, you're right in that there are fewer barriers to entry. I think that um, the new mindset, particularly as it relates to VC, and this notion of it's not all about just growth for growth's sake and zero profitability. It's about profitability now. And women historically are more um, focused on profitable enterprises and, and making money than, than men. That just is something that you've seen as a sort of trend in a statistic over time. So I think that will help them. Um, for sure. And I think the remote workforce scenario is going to really help as well, like that people are, the future of work is already here, right? It, it got completely accelerated by COVID. And now people are comfortable working from home um, if they can figure out childcare. People right. are comfortable from working from a cafe. And so I think that really helps women in particular, um, once again, childcare is figured out. But I agree just to stick with what you're, with the subtext of what you're saying, because I've seen this play out interesting. I'm not going to call anybody out, but among my team and other teams, I feel like there's been uh, devolving to traditional gender roles when you have two parents in the house and both working. Somehow yeah. or other, women are end up doing four jobs and a man still does one. You know, yeah. sorry, sorry, men, but you know who you are. So some that's broken. I mean, so I think as a leader, like, sorry, go ahead, Rebecca. I think as a leader, I, we have to be aware of that fact, but go ahead. Yeah. I want to comment on this because I've read the statistics and they're abysmal. Women are abandoning their companies because of, you know, the childcare issues and homeschooling and, um, you know, lots of colleagues are lamenting the fact that they're doing more than their share. And I keep going back to let's stop being victims, ha sit down, have the conversation with the partner that you married and say, we're dividing this up. It's on us to say this isn't fair, it isn't right. You know, I get it if, if let's just say, the wife is making $20,000 a year and the husband is providing for the family, right? That's a scenario that needs to be talked about. But if you both have legitimate businesses, sit down with your partner, the person that you signed up to do this with, and be like, we're dividing and conquering. Because that's, you know, I didn't have to sit down with my partner. That's just how it is in our household. Um, and yes, it's more stressful, but I think it's on us to really take the reins and say, I want my business. I'm not going to sacrifice it. And so how do we sort of parcel out all the duties? And it's for, you know, a collective responsibility for us to figure that out. I totally agree. But now we can go really deep on marriage. Cause I, I always think <laughs> having, having, having completely gotten it wrong once and ideally getting it right now, I always feel like marriage to some extent is a corporation without uh, job responsibilities or any type yeah. of work. Like, at the end of the day, you got to make it work as a partnership. And it is about sitting down and communicating who's doing what and why and what do I need. But I think as a leader, we're in a collective catastrophe mm -hmm. in the society, right? So as a leader, you have to step outside of yourself and into everyone else's shoes and just recognize that that needs to have a seat at the table that for whatever reason, a lot of women are shouldering multiple burdens, right? So yeah. when me as a CEO is like, need to call a meeting at 830, you have to realize that probably homeschooling is starting then. And that is just the kind of way it is. I don't know how to solve it other than let's have an honest conversation that like, this is really taxing working mothers. I grew up as a product of a single mom. So I'm particularly yeah. how virtually impossible it is to make a lot of those things where I agree with you not to be a victim, but I think it's incumbent upon CEOs to just at least have perspective and empathy about what everyone's dealing oh. with in this crisis. Yeah. Journey. You know, take everybody back for a bit. And then when we come out of it, the good part is, that should open up a lot of possibilities for a lot of people and a lot of different kinds of setups, right? I think we yeah. as a society probably net, net win, you know, once we get back on our feet, because innovation will happen faster. But right now, everyone's just sort of struggling to survive, it feels like.
Matt, yeah. have you heard of Eve Rodsky and Fair Play Life? No, but I so no. She wrote a book and then she created a set of cards. It divides up every single task in the entire household. Really? Which is just, is, is super helpful. And my husband and I actually sat down and did it. And you can see in, in absolute value terms, what, how many cards each of you is holding. And it's everything from, you know, chores around the house to uh, maintenance around the house, like a pipe breaks, whose responsibility is that, yeah. um, to school, <laughs> to school functions. There's all of these these tasks that we don't even think about that we do. And I, I found that to be tremendously helpful. But her whole point is just as a CEO or an executive, you would sit down and you plot out how you're going to get done all of the tasks that you have at work. Why don't you do the same thing at home? Mm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, my husband, and I certainly don't do that. Um, and we've now started to where it's like we have meetings just as we would for work, you know, with, with your partner, you know, Rebecca and I have touch bases at the top and the end of the week. You should be doing that with your significant other in order to ensure that all of the tasks that are happening that week get done. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, really interesting philosophy. And she, she has done a lot of work on the topic. I love that. I feel like as a society, we um, we don't we feel like it's unromantic to talk about some of the sort of businessy elements of making a marriage work. But yeah. I think a great marriage is the single greatest force multiplier in the world. My wife Sarah, like I owe all my professional success in the last few years. It's not even like rhetoric; it is actually a fact. And anybody who knows her knows she's the ultimate like Swiss Army knife can do anything. Yeah, I always think oh. she's a Russian spy, but nonetheless. <laughs> We don't talk enough about it and people carry it around. So I, I could go on and on about this topic, but I'll get those cards. I'm afraid to see how few cards I'm holding because my wife can also do all the <laughs> things she does. Like, so I'm basically incompetent, but uh, but let's talk about, I'm curious to hear Rebecca, like what are the particular um, issues you're feeling? Not just female founders, but all founders that you're interacting with and you as a business owner, what are you seeing people are just struggling with in terms of adapting to this era? Especially since you have some brick and mortar too. I'd love to hear your perspective. I think with regard to the collective specifically, some women were in the middle of a raise that came to a halt. Others had businesses that may maybe during this time is hard to feel relevant. Um, and and then some people, you know, might have been in a sale process. That's, you know, not necessarily happening right now unless you want to sell to the sharks that are circling. Um, I think for us as, as on the Rebecca Minkoff side, you know, 70% of our business evaporated basically overnight where, you know, predominantly selling to wholesalers. So how do you rebuild a company to be only direct to consumer? And what does that look like? And we had e-commerce, but again, 70% of our mind share every day was focused on servicing these stores. So now that 100% or 90% is really on our site every day, what does that mean? How do we talk to the consumer? How do we reach her? How do we entertain her? How do we get new eyeballs, right? Just because everyone's at home looking on their stream doesn't mean you can capture them easily. So we've had to get very innovative with all sorts of creative ways to reach new people. Lots of giveaways, lots of cross promotions, um, live streaming in China from our own stores. So you name it, we're, we're acting like a, a brand that just launched. That's a, a question for you, though. That's interesting. You are, you are always early and kind of first. How do you stay early and first so you don't get wedded to tactics from yesteryear? Uh, I'm just curious. I think that because we launched this company with nothing and it's been scrappy the whole way, I don't know that you ever forget what that feels like. And so when when panic hits and when strife hits, you, you have that muscle memory and you go back to like, all right, we're a startup again, back to the beginning, what do we do? 
And I just sort of went back to everything I did 15 years ago, but what is it, what does the modern version of that look like? Hmm. I say that all the time, I'm quoting myself, which is, it is what it is, but that uh, I talked to my CEOs in the middle of first, number one was stable, stabilize the patient, right? We have to survive. And the object of the exercise is extend a burn. But once we get past that triage period, the first couple of weeks, then it's to step back and say, if I were starting my business today, what business would I build? Right. So that you don't end up building a relic, you know, yeah. which I think anything from four months ago is effectively a relic. I don't know what, what that means, but yeah, what is, what is the next iteration of brick and mortar? Will retail department store survive, you know? Um, you know, I keep thinking about what that is and, and how that's going to look. I think there's going to be, you know, a strong desire for the consumer to get out um, into a place, especially when the weather gets cold. So as malls reopen, I think there might be a surge to going back to malls just so you can get out and walk around and see people. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of technology developments in the way of, you know, uh, there already exists some um, that you can just not have to try anything on. You just point and click, it adds to your cart, it ships to your house. So are these stores more sort of guide shops like what Bonobos had? where you're going in and getting a feel for the brand, but you're not doing anything inside of it. Is it same day delivery? I think you're just gonna see an evolution of, here's the place where I touch and contact and get a feel for the brand in real life, but everything else is done outside of that. Um, I think that's right. I think that makes, it's logical, right? It's efficient, it worked for Bonobos, it work, it's working at Showfields. Those who don't know, Showfields aggregates some of the best DTC brands, seems to be working there. Whatever it is in version, the next version of our society, it's gonna place a premium on efficiency. Right now that we've seen things that we didn't see before, that we could use Zoom. We don't need to fly across the world and kill our environment, right? That we we can shop efficiently through Amazon. Like, I think those are the things we'll leave behind. Like drawing upon my 9-11 experience when I was at Ground Zero, all the fear-based problems we sort of left behind or the fear-based predictions and the efficiency-based ones we adopted for the long-term. I think the same will probably true be true through this crisis around real estate, work from home and whatnot. I, I was thinking about Alan during the blackout for two seconds when I had time to reflect. You know, what do you think? Let's talk about something uncomfortable. What do you think are some of the unconscious biases, pluralizing bias that you encounter or that female founders would encounter with VCs? You know, that kind of creep into the dynamic that maybe, you know, for no fault of their own, even they're operating upon them. Yeah. Well, you hear a lot that there are the questions um, that are growth questions that males get asked for the most part, and where women get sort of these questions that are more focused around, I'm forgetting the name of the term, um, but it's, it's when you actually are asked, you're being asked to defend your business and defend the assumptions that you've made and the forecasts that you've made. So instead of getting to talk about, okay, here's the big vision, this is what I think I can achieve. Instead, you're sitting there and you're going, okay, well, yes, I, I need a COO oh, it is going to be really expensive, but here's how we're hoping we can cover that cost. Um, this is how much runway we think we have. So instead of talking about the opportunity or instead talking about um, how you're going to keep your business alive and protect it, which, like I was saying before, really has helped in a COVID environment, right? Because women have been, had more of a tendency to protect their business and be really conservative around their forecasting. I've actually heard from VCs before that, Men are given, they haircut men's projections by 20% and they add 20% to women's projections That's because awesome. women so often over deliver and only ask for what they need. That is um, really, this is fascinating. I want to I ask Rebecca to follow up on the strength question because I heard you talk a lot about 
women projecting strength. Going back to Ali's point, does that mean it's really important then when women are pitching, take it for what it is, assume that that bias might be at the table, that you're comfortable projecting strength about your business and like you almost have to, right, to overcome that bias? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this, um, I can only speak as a user experience of a woman, but there's this like, well, I don't feel strong and I don't wanna fake it, but fake it till you make it. You know, people are going into that boardroom all the time, you know, demanding um, gobs of money and getting it because they put their shoulders back and put their chest out and, and faked it, right? And so I think uh, the more practice you have, the more you're in there. I think it's good to get told no a lot because you have to reshape your pitch and read the room and and just keep you know asking for what you deserve even if you're cringing. I mean, there was a moment Ali and I were negotiating with a partner and I was like, oh God, should I really ask for that much money? And Ali was like, do it. And I was like, okay, F it. And, and we got it, so. Isn't it amazing that how successful you are? Like, I still have to give that speech to myself and then I beat myself up like, oh, you're so pathetic. You have no self-worth, you know? Like, at what point do you, you finally arrive, you know, at that place where it's just right. self-evident? And the answer is never. So never. everybody is faking it. Everybody feels like an imposter, right? Which I think is, when you don't know, you don't know that, which I think is important to sort of talk about it. Yeah. And maybe go back to that, you know, that bias, maybe especially for female founders and just little secret, you know, men too are completely faking it and don't feel worthy. And there's imposter syndrome. And what do you, what do you think? So the, back to the collective, what's the sort of, what does success look like? What does winning look like? I'll put that to you first to Allie. Like what is, what yeah. is, what is, what is when all is said and done, what do you hope to achieve? I think it's, it's helping you know, businesses ultimately be more successful, um, specifically female run businesses. Um, that's access to capital. So raising um, more funds and, and sort of closing that ratio of almost 3% now. So we're on our way um, versus men, uh, male founders at 97%. Um, I think it also means just changing the way that we do business, right? And um, having more of that positive sum mindset and being the vehicle to empower that, right? Giving people access to each other. You know, in our, our most recent program, we did Project Entrepreneur with UBS. We found that the community that was formed there, they're now far more valuable to each other than we ever were for them because they're sitting there and they're making introductions to other investors. They're making introductions to amazing digital marketing agencies and growth hackers. And they're sharing each, they're sharing job specs with one another, realizing that, wow, I've never moved forward more quickly in my business than by holding hands with the people next to me that are going through similar things. So it's not about, okay, we're not going to be able to win because that person is winning. It's mm. everybody can win. And it's sort of the rising tide notion. Um, so I think that's that's a little bit of a long answer, but um, mindset I think is probably the most important thing of all. Right. Well, you're attacking. It's an intangible thing, so the answer would be it's not like perfectly binary, right? But you have four thousand people. Did I hear that? Or now four thousand businesses now? More. Eighty five hundred. How much? Eighty five hundred. And the goal yeah. is there twelve million. Twelve million. Yeah. Just, just an easy twelve. Journey of a 12 million businesses starts with a thing, single LinkedIn live stream. We're going to get there by the end of this. <laughs> we are getting inundated with questions. So while I tee this up and let Heather pull a few ones, I want to make time to make sure we hear from everybody else. Like Rebecca, philosophically for a second, I just, I have my, my role models, the single most important people in my life have been strong females, right? So 
I'm not a perfect case study just because my formative years were Sonny Mandel, Christine Latigano, like these people who changed my life and they were tough, you know, and they're from politics, right? So I'm a little alienated from this. My, I'm, my use case is that, right? But what, do you, what is your advice to a woman on striking the balance of seeming, you know, tough and direct, but at the same time, navigating all these different dynamics in business? I've heard you talk so eloquently about it, but I'd love it for you to share your philosophy. Yeah, I'll take it back down to many years ago. I just wanted to be the den mother. So I had my office therapy hours come cry on my shoulder. Um, and what I realized is you can't make, as, as a business owner, you can't make someone happy necessarily with, with their life and their and, and themselves, right? You can, you can make a great work environment. You can have a great culture. You can make sure their work is fun, but you can't change what might be broken outside of that. Um, and then a consultant of ours was like, you are, you are employing people, you are giving them money and they need to do a job. And, and if they can't do the job, it's not, the, oh, but they're trying so hard, right? Or they're so earnest in their approach. Like if they're not taking the load off and allowing you to lay more bricks, they have to go. And so that didn't sort of divorce me from the idea of being a kind leader. You can be kind and tough, but I'm no longer the shoulder to cry on. Right. I'm empathetic, but it's not this like uh, with your child, if they can't ride the bike, you're going to do, you know, it's a different relationship with your employees. And if the person isn't helping you lay bricks at the end of the, end of the day or take a load off or help grow the company, then they then they have to go. And so um, I lead with empathy, especially during times like this. Um, but I lead with strength. And when people say stuff like I've had, you know, women say, oh, are you on your period today? No, no. you didn't do your job. So I'm upset that you didn't deliver. It has nothing to do with my time of the month. So I think we, when we're challenged or we're, we're told, oh, we're too aggressive or whatever, challenge it. You know, call that behavior out and it'll, it'll get silent real quick. I think it's the people that sort of, again, accept it and are scared to say something. Um, it's on us to say, no, this is not an acceptable thing to say to anyone. And it's, and it's you know, reported to HR or however it works within your company. And, and make sure that you're making sure that you're changing the culture within your company so that that can exist. Yeah. Did it take you um, having to break up with a toxic employee to kind of find your equilibrium in this area? Um, I was never more nervous than letting go of a truly horrific human being. Um, and once that happened, I was like, okay, if I can survive that and the company is so much better off, then you know, small minor infractions are, are easy to handle. It gets easier you know, over time yeah. to deal with this stuff. But I think your message is so important that, that this is the, the false message that's put out is for women that's supposedly binary, that you even have to leave the empathy behind to be some, you know, yeah. sort of a cockade in a you know, male world or whatever. When in reality, empathy is the asset. It just yeah. needs to be moderated at the appropriate time, right? And I yeah. think the best leaders are empathetic because empathetic people, right, give themselves and others the benefit of the doubt. So it's not true that you have to leave it behind. It's just, it's yeah. not it's not binary, right? You can be direct and still empathetic, honest with people. In fact, being dishonest with people is not telling them where they stand. I find that when I'm my weakest as a leader, when I have an emotional baggage, when I was going through divorce, I had to, I didn't want to deal with anybody else's emotional problems, right? So you're not direct. Then every if people don't know where they stand, they assume they're standing on quicksand and then they feel like they're drowning, right? So I think you can be empathetic, but be direct. Um, and I think that's just an important message for male or female leader, right? Like it's not, it's not one. Of, but I do have a bias towards women and thinking that women will will be much better in situations navigating those situations that require humanity, right? Which yeah. is everything. It turns out, especially nowadays. 
But let me shut up. I want to answer more questions. Heather, let's put up a few before I before I run out of time because these are so great. Here's a good one. For single moms, what would you say is a good way to prove balance uh, all in versus not sacrificing too much time and attention to kids' needs? There's probably no single perfect answer to this, but I want to hear it anyway. Allie, why don't you start? Oh, wow. I was hoping Rebecca would start in that one. That's, that's <laughs> no, a hard question. Um, I, I think that, that, that it's hard, but I, I do think everything going back to leadership and, um, and being an employee, even it's all about communication. Um, it's all about setting those boundaries. So in my last role, I actually had time blocked out of my calendar because nobody else in the entire organization was a mom where I was like, during this time, I'm dropping my kids off. I am not available. And that is sacred time that I will not give up for anything. I'm still going to get my job done. Um, I'm still going to hit my goals, but I will be out during that time. I will be out for bedtime. So I had a two hour block in the night and no, everyone knew you can't schedule during that period. Um, and it was a conversation that I had with, um, with my partner from the onset. And then I was also the last one to sign off at night, right? Because I knew that I had to put my kids to bed and then I turned the computer back on. Um, I really think it's about here are my goals. This is what I'm gonna achieve for you. Here are the, my boundaries. And you have to really stick to those and ongoingly communicate them too. Because even though they're on my calendar, some people would be like, wait, why is this on the calendar? Why is this blocked off? And so it was just reaffirming that commitment. Or if you have a, you have to, go to a soccer game or your kid has a test that week. And so you have to help them with homework. I think it's really, again, about just making sure you communicate that up front to your employer um, and note that you're still going to get done what needs to get done. And if you have to push it back a little bit too, it's communicating that. What do you think, Rebecca? I wholeheartedly agree. And I think, you know, there's a, outside of uh, being a mother, there's a lot of demands that Gen Z and millennials already request, right? So I've had people say, do not email me or text me or call me past 6pm. And on the weekends, I'm not available unless it's an emergency, right? So if someone without children is able to sort of feel the boldness of making that request, um, and it wasn't just one employee, we've had several employees say here are my boundaries, right? Um, I think it's very fair as a single mom to, like Ali said, over communicate. I'm a single mom. Um, the, this is my, my hard stops, my soft stops, but I'm going to prove to you that I'm, you know, I'm worth it and I'm going to deliver. Um, my, my husband's mother was a single mom and raised two kids and worked nights and they were alone a lot of the time. And my respect for single mothers is through the roof, but I think, you know, use, use that communication to really make sure your employer know where you stand. Right. I 100% agree. And I would add to that. Um, re and people respect those who respect themselves. And one of the ways you telegraph that you respect yourselves is respect yourself is by setting boundaries. So even your employee will pick up that signal that you understand your own worth. So, but you have to communicate your boundaries. It's when you don't and when there's a bleed. Now, some empl employers don't care. And then those are the ones, if you have power, you don't want to work for. If you, if you unfortunately have to sort of deal with it, then the best you can do is establish those boundaries. But I love what you said about the millennials, the millennials are kind of leading the way, right? They have all sorts of boundaries that are that, you know, any kind of older, older generation needs to sort of come to terms with. And I think as a leader, I just try to do this with my own team. My life is now, my work, personal life is all now blended together. I get up at five in the morning, start working. Like it's just, there's no balance anymore. So I imagine what my team must be dealing with. So 
back to leadership, I think it is incumbent to try to set some boundaries for your own team because people are insecure. They can't be seen. They're trying to be seen. But back to, you know, moms and balancing. I did it for myself. I said uh, every Wednesday I'm out of the picture. I have my kids every single you know Wednesday night, my little patch of dirt I tried to protect. But once as a leader you do that, you telegraph to your employees that they could do the same. And you notice people start raising hands like, I have a need that's been you know gone unmet. But great question. Let's hit a, do you have time for 10 minutes more? I'll hit a couple more. Heather, why don't you throw up another one? Oh, well, that's a, like a big kind of Patrick, very big question. <laughs> but, but who wants to take that? I won't subject both to the question, but great. Awesome. I could share uh, failures that would make you run for being on, an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> I guess, let's see, what's a really good one? Um, I'll, I'll go to the early days um, when we just started working overseas with a factory. We had no quality control person, not because we didn't want one. We couldn't simply afford one. And my bags came off the assembly line and went straight to the consumer with uh, Kate Spade and Rebecca Minkoff hardware on them. And I got a nickname. It was Quebec Spankoff. Um, not quite as sexy as Benifer. Um, and you know had to deal with hundreds of angry customers and angry stores who took a chance on stocking my brand you know the bloomingdale Sachs, nordstrom neiman marcus like, i'm sorry this was a mistake you know i turned it into a willy wonka contest and said if you do find a bag congratulations we'll send you a new one plus another one so we really tried to take that failure and make something i guess better come out of it but that's a horror story for that i that i'll never forget it's a good one though, but the, and the more important part is the pivot, right? Is the fact that you embrace the vulnerability. Like the good part about everyone living in a Truman show, apparently that all of our lives are on display is that the, uh, the, the bar to everything is kind of low now, right? Like you could just be honest. <laughs> I yeah. love the things we share now are so absurd, right? But and the, the good part is that nothing matters that much. That's the thing I tell young people all the time. What you're going to regret later on is that all the times you thought people cared when they just didn't give a shit, right? Like they were so preoccupied with their own lives. So it's nice to be able to share our failures openly. And uh, let's take two more questions. How do you avoid? How do you avoid getting into the power ego wars in the boardroom? But let's make that just a broader question about you know where does ego fit in, Ali? Like as a founder, what is the right balance between you know ego and humility and whatnot? What's your advice? Uh, it's a it's a hard question. I don't I don't do well in ego driven environments. So to be honest, I think it starts with finding a culture that doesn't perpetuate that. Um, and when I've been in places where I feel like it's going down that route, I'm like, I'm out. Um, I can't, I don't survive well in those environments. And I think probably most people don't, right? Because it, it becomes very toxic when it's about ego versus the business. Um, but when you do sort of start going down a route where you feel like there is a power struggle happening, um, my recommendation is that you take a beat, first of all, um, take a break so that you can sort of come down from an emotionally driven conversation and instead really go back to what's best for the business. Um, and if you are delivering feedback or communicating with somebody about what is best for the business, then ultimately um, that is the absence of ego. Um, and if they are fighting back with ego, then you just sort of have to withdraw from the situation because it's a can't win situation. I love that. That's great advice. I think that's sound. And let's throw this one up. No, wait, no, this is not the one. I would like this one. Slightly controversial. 
how do you compare working with women as a team versus men as a team? I found from experience women to be more collaborative and work for the overall goal versus men being more com competitive. Uh, Rebecca, what do you think? I don't want to throw anyone I'm related to under the bus. <laughs> Especially since you are talking to a man right now. But, uh, it's okay. Uh, so so uh, my brother's my co-founder and CEO of Rebecca Minkoff. And we do have five, five whopping males at our company. Um, and I will say this, and I don't want to say this is for all, for all men or women, but I do see that after a meeting, there's like a, you did great. The men are like, yeah, that was awesome when you said this, and then I did that. And it's like, it's like a basketball game. Like I did the thing and you did that. And I feel like as women, there's no like gloating over it. Like when Allie and I leave a meeting, we're like, oh, that was great. But we're not doing this like dance of like, so that's all, you know, that's been my experience. And I do, I'm proud to say we have a company of 95% women and everyone is very collaborative, but I do notice there is that like fist bumping with the men that occurs. Is that aspirational though? Is that something we all should adopt or is that something to be rejected? I think, you know, why I love working with Allie is it's, it's a we, right? It's a recognition of what the other one has done, but it's not like, oh, well, I did this and that was awesome. And then I did this and that was cool. So I think, you know, I think if you can sort of make it into a we and, and congratulate the other person, you know, that's something definitely to aspire to. Okay. What do you think, Allie? I'm not gonna I, let you know. I mean, I would. I actually do agree with the statement that women are more collaborative. Um, I've I've had the fortune of working with both. I will say that I've primarily worked with women. Um, so my whole career, it's it's been about you know, this is what this is the goal. This is what needs to get done. And then everybody is like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And it's just a let's get it done mentality. Not there's not stopping and sort of peacocking. Um, I was in, I managed a sales team and those were mostly women. And what I did find is it was more sort of the male mentality of like, let's, I'm going to stop. I'm going to tell you about all of my achievements in this meeting. And by the way, like I'm the, I'm the best you know, cause I, I think it, it sort of depends on the function as well. Like a marketing organization is going to be much more inclined to be collaborative. Whereas a sales organization, it is that mentality of it's independent sort of players versus, um, versus it being more of a team sport. Mm. So I think it depends. Um, but I have found that for the most part, women are more collaborative. Yeah. Well, no generalization is entirely true, but I, I have, I've definitely found that, um, uh, women and I have worked with and founders and just more comfortable sitting with fact patterns for longer, if that makes sense. Yeah. Thinking through, don't need to have that answer immediately, willing to take the inputs, which is something that men should aspire to emulate, right? But I think, look, in a, in a Nirvana, it's a culture of mutual respect where everybody's drawing upon what everybody else has to offer, just trying to sort of get a little bit better. I love that you are by what you're doing, fostering an honest conversation about this and creating a culture of, yes, I can, among any women out there who have great ideas and think that like it's just not accessible to you or because you're a single mom or because you won't be able to raise capital by what you're doing you're saying it is possible and there's a warm place to kind of come and and a collective to uh to, start to get on your feet so like i said i owe much of my career to strong women so i'm so excited to talk to you 
my wife is the ultimate strong woman who I owe my entire success. So I have to give her props every interview. But why don't you give me, why don't you have the last word and tell me what you want people to do or out there watching. There's 8,500. We need about another 10 million more. So uh, Rebecca, Ali, I turn it over to you to give your pitch. Uh, well, you should definitely apply if you own 50% of your company to be a part of the Female Founder Collective. We're going to be rolling out some different membership opportunities in the next few weeks. We have weekly webinars. Um, we also have a seal, which is on over 3 million products to date to get the consumer to sort of turn over their whatever, whatever have you, see the seal and say, I'm buying that. That's a woman. Yeah, yeah. Show that again. I didn't, I want to see. Oh, it. I was just an example, like oh, black okay. model and, you know. Got it. I didn't know we had a little mark about it. Yeah. Um, Allie, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I would say we have also a directory called Support Your Ladies. And it, it, it has over 6,000 businesses that are divided up by category, um, types of services, so that in addition to being part of the collective, you can go on. And if you're not part of it and you don't own 50% of your business, then you can actually um, help support these women and their efforts by buying women and working with women as well. All right, terrific. I'll leave on that. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. And I look forward to seeing how big this can become over the next several years. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. We were nimble. We, we, we hit the tough topics. We have a power outage. We can do anything. Yeah. Power up. You guys ran with the questions. <laughs> anyway, all right. Thanks again. Have a great Thank day. You. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.